Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. One of the biggest lessons I've learned from cancer is to try to suspend judgment about the way people approach their own lives and their own illnesses and their own choices and their own values. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On the show today, a luminary in the annals of cancer advocacy, the one and only Gwen Darian. While she may be the EVP for patient advocacy at the National Patient Advocate Foundation and the Patient Advocate Foundation, her story runs much deeper, 30 years deep, in fact, into the past, where a young passionate student of photography and contemporary art had her life interrupted with a cancer diagnosis and found herself on a different path, one born of her own condition, but not one to define her. Gwen is the creative force behind not one, but two groundbreaking cancer magazines, MAM, M-A-M-M, a women's magazine for anyone whose life has been affected by breast cancer or reproductive cancers, and CR Magazine, the official publication of the American Association of Cancer Research. No small doings here, folks. Throughout the course of our conversation, I make continued reference to a recent commentary she published with the National Academy of Medicine about her life's work in three chapters. There's a link to that in the episode description. Now, I mean this sincerely. Gwen has been a hero of mine, a source of inspiration, and a mentor who's shown me how to truly make the most of the time we have been given. Enjoy the show. Gwen Darian, thank you so much for joining me here on Out of Patience. I am so excited to go down the rabbit hole with you as early 90s survivor trendsetters, one might argue. But my first question is, is it Gwendolyn? Is it Wendy? Or is it just Gwen? I always want to ask Gwen's that question. Thank you, Matthew. It is just plain Gwen. All right. Argument settled. (laughs) (laughs) There's no argument. I'm just kidding. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Again, I love interviewing friends and colleagues I've known for a million years. And I think the perspective I like my listeners to learn about is how do we get from there to here? And who are the geezers, right, that were in the mm-hmm. back of the back of the bus a million years ago? What was life like before the internet existed yeah. and the AOL CDs prevailed the land, right, roaming free across every street sidewalk curb? It yeah. was a moment in time you cannot replicate. And uh, and you were there, regrettably, because you had cancer, but, yes. <laughs> but you were there. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I, I read your, your piece. We're going to make a reference to it, your, your commentary. 
Transformation, My Experience as a Patient and an Advocate in Three Chapters. I actually read it. I swear I read it. I took lots of notes. It's covered in like fluorescent yellow highlighter. And uh-huh. I have a lot to talk to you about. But, you know, right. no one plans to be a cancer survivor. No one wakes up. No. I can't wait for that chemotherapy to flow through my blood. Life for you was relatively normal. And then all of a sudden, boom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My question for you is, so you had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And yes. the question is like, that doesn't sound like cancer, does it? Yeah. It doesn't, and they actually don't, it's a hematological cancer, and so they often, I don't know if it's sort of polite words that they try to use to to make it not sound like cancer, but it is definitely cancer. It's cancer of the lymph system. Right, and and I've heard so many stories, of, oh, that's that's okay, right? No, it's cancer. Then just no, say it's cancer, it's cancer right? Yeah. Yeah. You, you were ahead of your time by asking a provocative question, which one might argue is not so provocative anymore, which is... You should ask me more about me and my life than just care about my biology. Was that precociousness embedded in you or were you just like pissed that this is happening to you when you wanted to feel like a person? I, I don't think that I was angry so much as I was terrified. And I was, I couldn't figure out what had happened to me. I was 35 years old. I was directing a contemporary art center in Los Angeles. I had just moved from from New York to Los Angeles. And I was on loan to Los Angeles, as my husband said, I was on loan to the suburbs recently. But I was sort of at the height of my career. And I was having a I was having a really great time, but there was something wrong. I wasn't feeling right, and I knew there was something wrong. I was like many people, and I'm sure you have a bad diagnosis story, but almost everybody I know who is diagnosed with cancer as a young adult has a bad diagnosis story where they were not taken seriously. What I was really looking for was how does this diagnosis, which everybody told me was, I mean, they were kind of scratched their head and said, but you're so young and you seem so healthy. How was this diagnosis? How did it fit into who I was and what the rest of my life was going to be like? Because after we got through the cliched, terrible good news, bad news delivery of, of the uh, diagnosis, you've got cancer, the good news, the bad news is you've got cancer, the good news is we can treat it, um, which I guess was supposed to be comforting. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was just in complete shock. I, I was in the land of the sick. And as um, Susan Sontag wrote in her great book that so many of us read at that point, Illness's Metaphor, all of a sudden I went from the land of the very healthy young adults to the land of illness where it where it was very alienating and I was not like any of my peers um, or any of my family or anybody else for that. I mean, it was just it was just a very profoundly disorienting, disconnecting and terrifying experience. And I think the other thing that happens is when you're in the middle of treatment, and I'm not sure if you had a similar situation, but you're sort of in the middle of the treatment. You just kind of get into the middle of the treatment rhythm and and you don't really think about it as much as you do afterwards. And so I think I didn't, I don't think I thought about it as much during that time, but afterwards I'm like, wait a minute, what just happened to me? How did that happen? How could, how did I get through this? What am I going to do next? And what is my life going to look like? I was 35, I was 36 years old when I finished cancer treatment. So there were so many things going around in my mind and there were so many 
things going around, I assumed, and other people had similar experiences, that I really needed to connect with those other people. I really needed to be able to put, give meaning and to an experience that felt so like it could be very meaningless. And one of the things that propelled me from the beginning was the idea that and I've written and thought about this a lot, that cancer was was not a gift. I hate that. I hate that. Uh, happy birthday. Uh, happy. Yeah. I mean, I hate that way of looking at it, but it did absolutely change my life. And so if it was going to change my life, I had to think about how I could give meaning to that change. And that's when I started asking questions. And that's when I started thinking about what that experience meant to other people. And that's when I started trying to connect with people um, to help be part of a community, to help inspire a community, to create a world and to create something around me where I could help do something different for people who came after me and people who and people who came before me and to not just I couldn't just go back to my regular life I was I was directing a contemporary art center at that point it just didn't seem it didn't seem like what I should do at that point point. and how many AOL CD fake accounts did you create in the 1990s to build that community I'm totally kidding <laughs> So this I is- actually never did. And I actually I didn't even have a cell phone for a while until one time I was in a meeting and standing next to phone booths with um, my phone card thinking, this is absurd. What's a I'm going to go get booth? one of those. Yeah, we'll get one of those giant phones that <laughs> you can barely carry around in your purse. Um, I mean, well, this I is ideally a young adult cancer story, and I want to focus yes. on that because, you know, we always talked about how actually I'll say it this way. A lot of the feedback I got, possibly negative, was, well, why is young adult cancer so special? It wasn't so peachy in my 70s. And my first response is always, if you have to ask, you'll never know. But the real response is that it's not better or worse. It's different. And I don't want to skip over the fact that you said something very important and passionate to who you were and who you are, which is the arts. You had a career in the arts. It's your passion. It's your purpose. And that was interrupted. Can you tell me more about what it was like to have that perceivably ripped away from you and how you kept it close and what role it served to get you through all this crap? I sort of transitioned out of the art world into other things. And and it still informs so many things that I do. But there was a period of time where I was kind of exploring and thinking about what I was going to do and how I was going to make a transition in my career. And then I ended up making a transition in my career that allowed me to bring in and retain some of the work that I had done um, in the arts and use that and use that way of looking at the world and telling stories to create a community of cancer survivors and cancer patients. Um, And so I was... I started a magazine for people with cancer called MAM, and that's how, Matthew, how you and I met. And then I did a second magazine for people with cancer called CR. And I also, in the early years, was teaching in the Masters of Fine Arts program at the School of Visual Arts. And I taught a critical thinking class, and I taught a thesis class. And what they were all about was the idea that you had a way of communicating with people, sort of a magazine was a venue. 
a contemporary art center as a venue and you have an audience, you know, you have very different relationships with everybody in the audience. And the people that come into contemporary art, contemporary art is, a, I mean, all art is a dialogue. Contemporary art in particular, if the artist is there and you're speaking with them, is really a dialogue. And that's what a magazine was. I mean, it wasn't the, what we wanted to do with that magazine was to really, was not to make it just a static piece of paper that you could, that you just um, put into, well, actually, we didn't recycle then, did we? No, we didn't. Um, we did not recycle even, but it wasn't a static piece of paper. It was supposed to create a. Um, it was supposed to create a connection with the people who read the magazine and who were part of the magazine and were pretty much part of that community. And I used what I had learned about telling stories and creating connections with people and tried to make that manifest in the magazine. So we told a lot of stories with photography. We told a lot of stories where we had words and images that um, played off of each other. We looked at things that were taboo. And so I was in a pretty experimental contemporary art world. So there were always things that were taboo. And we did the same thing in the magazines. We, we talked about things that people wanted to know about but didn't necessarily um, weren't necessarily willing to bring to the forefront. Like, um, you know, like the, we did one of the first pieces on on sexuality and sex and cancer after treatment and what the, what that meant for for people. And it was, I mean, the response to that was just amazing because people didn't really talk about it and the doctors didn't talk about it. So I continue to use that. I continue, everything that I do is about elevating the voices of others and about creating dialogue and conversation between and among many different kinds of people. You know, when I was sick in 1996 and 1997, I remember getting handed a copy of Coping magazine. Yeah. And it was like the Debbiest Downer of all Debbiest Downer media publications. <laughs> I mean, I had no basis of comparison. So right. I was just handed this thing and it was all, you know, like old people and little kids and like, where did I belong? And then I was made aware of Gilda's Club on Houston Street here mm -hmm. in the city. And I went once because someone said I should go and it was all old people and I didn't fit in. So this idea of making kind of like, remember those choose your own adventure books when we were growing up? Like, yes. how do we construe our own future when there's nothing there for us? I guess my, right. I don't really have a question, but I'm going to make one up. What brought you into this world of breast cancer when you came from blood cancer? So when I started in 1997, which is the magazine was launched in October 1997, if you were doing advocacy, there weren't very many choices. And with women, it was primarily breast cancer advocacy. And so I just jumped into it because it was an opportunity and it was an opportunity to communicate. And the what we did that was actually a little more radical than other what other people did is that we actually used breast and reproductive cancer and we were among the first people we were among the first groups that really um that really focused on ovarian cancer and cervical cancer and endometrial cancer as well and so it was really much more about what were the opportunities for advocacy than actually having to make a complete match between my experience and other experiences. Because I still got to talk, I mean, there still are there still are many universal experiences that people have, even though everybody's cancer is different and everybody's experience is different and everybody's life is different, we still have a lot of things in common. And so 
that's why I jumped into it. It was really because of the opportunity of patient advocacy and the breast cancer community, which learned from the AIDS community, which learned from the women's health community, was really the place where public advocacy was happening. And there was some work in prostate cancer advocacy of all the men's cancers, but that wasn't, that was a very different kind of advocacy. Women and breast cancer really you know, they they took to the streets. There were they they actually early on took some of the some pages out of the playbook. I can't believe I'm using a sports metaphor. I've never watched <laughs> sports in my life. I forgive but you. They it's took, okay. They they took some pages out of the HIV/AIDS gr- activist group and actually chained themselves to the. Um, I think I'm not sure if it was the fences of Genentech um, for access to a drug that was that was helpful for a particular kind of breast cancer. But one of the things that the that was a it was the central focus and the thing that really resonated with me was to destigmatize cancer and destigmatize the idea that you had cancer and that you weren't going to say that you that you you know you didn't have an illness that you had to whisper what it was and to and to really make it okay to talk about what you were facing and okay to talk about all the facets of what you were facing not just your the physical impacts the emotional impacts the daily living impacts and that's what really drew me to it and then after a number of years i was i had the opportunity i wanted to start a new magazine and i really wanted to do all cancers, and then all cancers, and then also include men and women. And at that point, I'd also gotten more interested in some of the cancer research activities. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to start a new magazine at the American Association for Cancer Research called CR Magazine. And so that's, you know, that's why I started there was because that was a place that you one was able to start. But I always said that I was a survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then the irony is, is that 20 some years later, I had breast cancer. And then a few years after that, I had endometrial cancer. So sort of had two of the cancers that I started my early advocacy work around. Back with our guest after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. 
Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. On the heels of what you just talked about, Gwen, my entry point into the cancer world was a guy, I think you know him, Craig Lustig. Mm-hmm. And Craig was, he went to my alma mater. He's bald, Jewish, from New York, grew up in New York City and had brain cancer. Talk about niche yeah. peer community. He yes. sought me out and he asked me a blatant question. It's like, you should be a cancer advocate. And I said, what the hell is a cancer advocate? Do you remember a time when that word didn't even factor into your head? And then you yes. now, you know, in your in your piece, you talk about how you've now sort of built the environment and the ecosystem for people who followed you. I like to say, so it sucks a little less. I think it sucks a lot less for what you put together. But in the, I guess if you're looking in your rearview mirror at this point, here you are X many years later, three cancers later, it's no small potatoes to start like two major cancer publications and work for AACR, the American Association of Cancer Research. That is an extraordinary organization that will be profiled on the show at some point. Did you say like, how did I get here? How am I still here at some point? Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I mean, I it's so funny because I had a conversation with one of the people on our team, and I am currently at the Patient Advocate Foundation and the National Patient Advocate Foundation, actually currently and forever, I should say. Um, and I lead the patient advocacy and engagement and education program there, which is the dream of all my dream jobs, which is to work at this intersection of direct patient services and really health care system change. And so one of the young people on my on our team, I, I hate saying my team, but our team said to me, you've had an epic life. Now, um, this is a young person saying epic, but, and I started to say to her, yeah, but except for those three cancers. And then I realized <laughs> that was actually the wrong way of looking at it. And I reframed it for the past couple of years into yes and. And so I've tried to take but out of my vocabulary. So yes, and I had three cancers. And I got married later in life and have an incredible life partner. And I was not able to have my own children and have the most amazing stepchildren who I've known now that have more than half of their lives. So I've started to think about it as an and. So whether that means it sucks less or whether it means it just um, is is the way that my life path has gone, um, I'm not sure... I'm not sure I ever really saw the end. When I started, I didn't have a path in. Um, I didn't have a path in mind. I also have been very fortunate in being able to really create the every job I've had, and to pull together groups of people to work towards a very similar goal. The underlying value of everything that I do is around 
equitable access to affordable quality healthcare for all. So it's all about equity. It's all about social justice. It's all about healthcare as a right. Um, it is about learning. I learn every day and I don't just learn one thing. I learn multiple things. And I keep on growing this group of people from whom I learn all these extraordinary things. And I try to do this all within the framework of our, our socio-political framework, which is a little disturbing, which is more than a little disturbing right now, but it is also energizing me even more to do the work that I'm doing now because of the threat to um, equitable, affordable, quality healthcare. Is it even possible though that your colleague just thinks you're epic in general? irrespective of your cancer. Like, take the compliment, Gwen. Take the compliment. I think so. I think so. Well, that's how I chose to... I, yeah, I think so. Because I told her that and she just... She was laughing. Um, oh, she's... Yes, I think so. She's... I think so. She's very fantastic. But it is... As a cancer survivor, my first my first response was, but. Right. And at, then I thought, no, my first response should be and. I want to go back to, again, your, your piece that you wrote. You had cancer three times. You had uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, breast cancer, and the endometrial cancer. The first time, you never felt like you were heard as a person. The second time, you kind of went in unprepared, but it happened again. And the third time, it's like when you, like if I had a third kid, there'd be no photos. They'd be invisible. <laughs> like the first two were taking up all my time. Good luck raising yourself. <sighs> you know, when you walked in there, I, I read that you, your doctor said endometrial. Oh, it's the boring cancer compared to what yeah. you've been through. Do you, yeah. do you still feel like you're treated like a person? Yeah, I think that so... The difference between the three times, I had a very caring physician the first time I was diagnosed. It was a very different time, and there were very different relationships between physicians and their patients. We were really patients then. We were really not people. But he was very caring, and he was an excellent doctor. I absolutely wish that there was more continuum of care. There was more of a transition. There are things that I wish would have happened in my treatment, but I don't blame any individuals. I think it was really the system at that point. You, I, I mean, I think about it today. You go into the doctor today and, and my doctor, um, my current oncologist, will, she'll turn around, she'll turn the e EHR towards me and her laptop towards me or, you know, computer towards me so that we can look up things together. And that makes me feel comfortable that she's a really fantastic doctor. 25 years ago, if my physician would have suggested he didn't know something, I would have thought I've got to find a new person. He doesn't know everything. That's the way that, the, that it was then. So I think there's a, I want to make sure I don't blame him. I don't blame, I do blame my internist a little bit at that point for not taking me seriously, but the, the oncologist really did. It just was, it was a very different time. Um, I think for my second cancer, when I had breast cancer, which was related to the radiation that I had to my chest for my first cancer, it was so strange to go from being a kind of public cancer survivor and a very long-term cancer survivor because it was 20 years and then all of a sudden be a public cancer patient. And um, I called up one of my friends who is a surgeon and I said, you know, I, I, this is, I've had this diagnosis, what do I do? And he, was, he wasn't in New York and, he, and I said, who should I go see? And 
I knew so many of these doctors so well. So I went to see somebody I didn't know quite as well. She was a fantastic surgeon, um, a really caring person. And, but in some ways, because I had so much knowledge, I didn't ask all the questions and she didn't ask me as many questions as she might have with somebody who didn't. But I will say, and um, I, I say this all the time, that my self-advocacy skills just went flying out the window. And nobody should, I, I just kind of went in there, thought I knew what I was doing, and I made, I turned out I made the right decisions. And there are definitely decisions that I made that are, that were very informed, but they were informed for a short period of time. So, you know, I knew how to ask about risk and absolute risk and relative risk and, and uh, recurrence and local and metastatic recurrence. So I knew that I knew the language. I knew that I, I knew what to ask. Um, I think what I didn't understand fully, and I'm not sure how I, and this is something I'd love to be able to communicate to people is what some of these things meant. So she asked me if I wanted a bilateral mastectomy. And I said, but I have a cancer that you told me uh, never comes back, that 98% of people never have any kind of recurrence, including a local recurrence. And she, I said, why would I do that? She said, cosmetic. I said, well, I, that's, you know, it was just, so I knew how to ask those questions. What is the absolute risk of this coming back? What, ha what are the ways that people usually, what is, what happens after this? Um, my oncologist at the time asked me if I wanted to have a, a test to see if I should get chemotherapy. And I said, well, nobody ever gives chemotherapy for mucinous breast cancer, which is the kind I had. So I knew enough to ask those questions. So I was a very informed patient. But I think I didn't know enough, I didn't know as much to ask about quality of life issues and things that would come beyond that quality of life, beyond that. And that's where I found this little lack. So it was a very interesting transition because I knew so much more about the science of cancer and the options for cancer treatment. But I'm not sure I knew quite as, quite as much as I thought I did about the impact on quality of life. So I like to say that cancer is like the shit happens store that no one wants to shop in because when you yeah. go into it against your will, there's no like greeter wearing a vest to tell you on um, what aisle to buy your things or whatever. You became your own greeter in your own yeah. store and yet still <laughs> you had trouble finding certain things on the shelf. Um, so super quick, final question for you. This is an open-ended question because I ask it of most guests and it goes back to the word advocate. And everyone likes to say, and it makes sense to say this, oh, you, everyone has to advocate on behalf of themselves because not everyone has someone to be their greeter. Is it really that easy to just, quote, be your own advocate? People aren't always born with the moxie and the chutzpah that put them in a place to be an advocate for themselves and question things and get second opinions. You've been doing this a long time, obviously born of your condition. What have you found in working at the Patient Advocate Foundation moves the needle in helping the people that need the push to be their own advocate? So I would say... I would never push anybody to do something they do not want to do. I think there's a continuum. Most people want to be very involved in their care and their care decisions, whether they, whatever level they want to be involved on, there's just a small percentage of people on each end through, you know, lots of surveys and research that either want to be completely in control or want to cede all control. 
But I want people to do it the way that they want to do it. I do not want to push somebody to say that they have to be a self-advocate. If that doesn't work for them, that is fine. And there should be no judgment. And so one of the biggest lessons I've learned from cancer is to try, I don't always succeed, but to try to suspend judgment about the way that people the way people approach their own lives and their own illnesses and their own choices and their own values. So what I try to do and what our case managers and the people who work in direct patient services try to do is we try to get people to articulate what their values and their goals are and then think about how they want to go through their experience of illness and recovery or chronic illness based on those values and those goals. And then we ask people and we listen to people. We don't tell people. We don't speak for people. We don't tell people. We don't, we do things as much as possible side by side. But there are people, there are times and there are people who don't want to do that. So I want to make sure, and I think we've gone a little bit too much to this, you have to be a self-advocate end of the spectrum of the continuum. I think we're swinging back a little bit. But I think the I think it is really, really important to ask people what they need in the place where they are at that moment. And that can also change. It can change weekly. It can change monthly. It can change over the continuum of illness. And so self-advocacy, yes, is um, it helps you get good care, but self, but somebody advocating on your behalf can also help you get really good care. And I've done it for family members. I've done it for friends. I've also had people do it for me. And in this last six-year period or seven-year period where I've had these two other cancers, I've had people advocate for me as well. So I think it's, I think it's really important not to be black or white about it. I think it's really important to under, to ask people what they want and try to help them get it as much as you possibly can. Gwen Darian, trifecta cancer survivor, executive vice president for patient advocacy at the National Patient Advocate Foundation and the Patient Advocate Foundation. And I can't stress this enough. The publisher of MAM and CR magazines. Look it up, kids. Links in the description. Gwen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Matthew. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.